Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host for the Post Money Plan Podcast. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. Okay, so I'll be continuing my discussion with George, where we were talking about interest rates and the Federal Reserve. We'll just keep going with the subject and see how long we take it. So I'm going to jump us back into the discussion and pick us up with the interconnectivity of the global financial system. I don't know if this is necessarily related to our money system now or just the complexity of the global economy now, but I think as a system becomes more and more complex and interconnected, the more fragile mm-hmm. it ironically becomes. As our economy has become more and more interconnected with the internet and global debt markets and all those kind of things, when you have defaults going on in one place, that can have a knock-on domino effect to the entire world. Right, and uh, it's important to remember how interconnected the the global economy is, and especially the global debt markets, because these interest rates that affect all of us and have consequences to our daily lives are really affected by the global market. It, it's not it's not just domestic investors or domestic players that set these interest rates. One of the reasons why rates in the U.S. are so low and have been so low for a long time, especially in more recent years, is because rates elsewhere in the in the developed world are so low that investors in Europe and in Japan are looking for higher rates in the U.S. And, and when they plow their money into U.S. government bonds, that lowers the rate of interest that they pay. I think it's fascinating that investors in in Asia and Europe are having such a pronounced effect on our economy here. And it's, it's not something that people dwell on or people may even realize day to day, but it's certainly a, a very kind of real effect on, on U.S. interest rates. The reason for low rates in these places is because their economies have been sluggish and we haven't been seeing high or even normal uh, rates of inflation in in the rest of the developed world. People think that the Fed has said, has signaled that they're going to raise their Fed funds target rate over time. And they've, they've, they've signaled that pretty clearly. You know, we may expect that rate to increase by 0.5 to 1% every year for the next couple of years. And we might see a, a short-term interest rate of, let's say, 2.5% in a couple of years. But that doesn't necessarily mean that longer-term interest rates are going to rise in tandem. There's certainly some correlation, Inverted but yield curve, um, possibly. <laughs> that's not off the table <laughs> by any means. And I think, though, that will be more due to things that are either passed or not passed by our current government that may or may not boost the economy. The funny thing about the Fed funds rate is it's kind of like a waterfall effect on the rest of the chain of interest rates throughout the economy, like we're saying, all the way down to the mortgage rate that you would go and get at a bank, even the deposit rates that the banks offer you as a customer, those are impacted by the rates that they're getting. The big thing for banks is their business, their profit is the spread, the margin that they make on the money. They borrow money and then they lend money. And they make the spread. Right. So if rates go up 
then they have to charge higher rates and it, it knocks on. So it kind of trickles right. through the economy. And there's, there certainly is a, a correlation between short and long interest rates, but it's by no means, you know, one-to-one. -one. And there are situations where the short-term interest rate goes up and the long-term interest rate keeps on going down or vice versa. It's a more complicated story than the dog wagging the tail because the Fed reacts to economic conditions and economic conditions also affect longer rates. So it, it's certainly a very complicated and uh, interconnected Actually, system. Actually, I've got an, an analogy for this, which I bet you haven't heard before because sure. I, I kind of made it up myself. The Federal Reserve is to interest rates as Saudi Arabia is to oil prices. What I mean by that, so I'll take the oil side. Saudi Arabia is a big oil producer, right? And they're the gorilla in the oil market. They seemingly are a price maker where they get to set the prices that they'll sell oil to buyers for. The problem for them is if they raise prices higher than competitors, buyers can go elsewhere because it's a fungible commodity kind of thing. In reality, Saudi Arabia is a price taker and the buyers set the prices. And in the same way, the Federal Reserve is the big money creator kind of, they set the interest rates. So they're the gorilla in the money market. But even though they seem like a price maker where they get to set the price of money via the Fed funds rate, if they raise rates higher than other countries, then investors will then invest in other countries and go elsewhere. So in reality, I think the Fed is actually a price taker in that sense. No, I think that that's an apt analogy. I think the, the only difference, though, is that the Fed's not out to make a profit. Except that they are you know, returning the, the way that return to their shareholders. No, no, they are. Which, <laughs> I can't remember who it was that described them as the world's biggest hedge fund. And that's not an unfair analogy to draw because they own so much of the mortgage and government bond well, market. I was just alluding to the fact that the private shareholders of the Federal Reserve have a 6% perpetuity bond. How do you get hold of one of those? <laughs> I don't know. But the main difference between the Fed and, and Saudi Arabia in this case and their relationship to the oil market is that you know, Saudi relies on oil revenues to fund all its uh, various government expenses. Whereas the Fed, they intervene in the market by either buying or selling bonds, not in order to make a profit, but in order to try and move rates for other investors. And in fact, in order to do that, they most likely make a, a mark-to-market loss on their purchases. Do you remember how big of a deal they were making back in 2008 on uh, mark-to-market accounting? Um... Because that was what was putting such financial stress on a lot of the bigger institutions is they were having to mark to market their positions. And since they were in the market trading at such discounted prices, it was really hurting them. Yeah, I think the markets in which that had a bigger effect were the illiquid ones where we saw a lot less regular trading and a lot less regular price setting. So in the more everyday markets like in equities or in government bonds, there's so much trading being done, and it's very easy to observe the market price of a given security. However, in, in some of these other less liquid markets and less transparent markets, quite frankly, in credit derivatives and in non-agency mortgage products, some securities were very thinly traded, or if at all, and it was very hard to get a price on them. So traders had more discretion to mark their positions at you know, Even which more uh, applicable to the regular person, real estate, homes, 
that's actually not a very liquid market in terms of turnover. The uh, supply of homes versus the amount that are bought and sold every year is pretty low. So the price that's getting set for all real estate is based on a very small percentage of the actual homes that are available. So that also, in a time like that, those house prices are getting marked to market based on a very small segment of the actual supply. And where that actually materializes short of a homeowner selling their home is in products tied to home equity, such as loans, and even actually property tax rates. If a bank values your home lower than in the past, then you obviously can't take out as big a loan against it. And similarly, if the local government praises your home to be higher than you bought it at, then guess what? They're going to raise your property taxes. Not, not the percentage tax, but the, Nominal. Uh, the actual amount that you have to pay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let me lead us into this. What's your forecast for the future? For interest rates? <laughs> I think the first thing I should say is that if anyone is claiming that they have a, a good forecast for what the interest rate is in the future, or for that matter, any financial indicator or price, then you should take it with a very large grain of salt. Everything that the Federal Reserve has signaled in their various press conferences and statements is that uh, rates are going to be lower for longer, is the phrase that is often heard. And also that the long-term target rate for their Fed funds is not going to be as high. What they call the terminal rate is not going to be as high as it has been in the past. They're targeting, I forget what the number is, 2.5% or something like that in two or three years' time. And they don't expect it to go you know, much higher than that. That being said, you know, it depends a lot on global events and the progression of the economy and, you know, if some kind of geopolitical event might take place, who knows? Or if there's, a, you know, another oil crash or oil spike or any of these things can have a, a big knock-on effect for interest rates and for the rest of the economy. So it's really a fool's errand to try and predict. <laughs> Isn't that what, what we're paid for? No, no, no. We're paid to invest our clients' money in, in interest rates, whether they rise or fall, <laughs> and to try and beat benchmarks. Benchmarks might print negative returns month over month or year over year, but as long as we're, we're beating them, we're, we're doing our job correct. <laughs> so they're negative. If I just do nothing, I should beat that. Well, but you can't do nothing because if you do nothing and they suddenly rates rally, you're going to get fired. But... Our goal is always to invest prudently and uh, protect client assets. To me, low rates are just so stimulative. If it costs me almost nothing to borrow, then that incentivizes mm. me to go out and borrow and invest a ton. Well, let me ask you this, though. How levered are you personally? Do you Are you going out and like, spending with reckless abandon, or are you taking out every loan that you can? No, I mean, I personally am very conservative. You know, obviously that was a slightly tongue-in-cheek question, but I think more people than not are like I, you. No, they they want to be... I hands down well, refute that. I hands down refute that. <laughs> maybe not quite like you, but they have a, a slightly conservative mindset. People want to try and save for the future. People hear about their healthcare costs going up and retirement costs are going to be astronomical and this and that. And 
I think this increase in savings is one of the factors that has driven rates down over the recent history. You know, there are an awful lot more savers than there were 20, 30 years ago. What about on the business uh, level, sir- though? Um, okay, so for corporations, it's telling, right, that an awful lot of companies are hoarding an awful lot of cash. I guess overseas cash is, is a, another story because that depends, depends on repatriation tax right. rate, which happens to be the same as the corporate rate at this point in time, I believe. And that's why there's a lot of cash overseas. But even domestically, companies seem to be hoarding cash. They, they don't have a on aggregate, they don't have a very big reason to borrow because they're flush with cash. And the reason why they're holding on to cash or returning cash to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends is that they don't feel like the returns that they could get by investing in either projects or, or new employees domestically is worth the return. In other words, they don't expect a good enough return for domestic investment. And I think the reason why that is, is that they have a low or pessimistic opinion of the economic outlook or the level of economic growth, either in their particular industry or more broadly. I'm not sure. I can see that on a credit level, but in just in terms of an individual project basis to say, if I buy five cows and then I put some time into feeding them and growing them, and I have to spend, you know, $100 a month to feed them or whatever. You know, you do your calculations and you say, I can sell them for this much three years from now. I run my numbers and I say, oh, okay, I'm comfortable taking on that effort or that labor, that risk, all those things associated with that. I tack on my margin that makes me comfortable and then I'm willing to make that investment. And it seems confusing to me that at any given point in time, whether that was now or whether that was 20 years ago, there's still the opportunity for inventions to occur, new technologies to take hold in in society. All those kind of things can evolve at any given point in time, really. So it seems kind of strange to me, except for the investor sentiment or consumer sentiment. So I guess in your example of the cow farmer, in the past, maybe their expectation of the price they could get in the future for a cow at auction would be high enough to justify the initial expense and, and the investment over the three years that it takes to raise the cow. However, today's livestock farmer may not see the same opportunity for an increase in cattle prices in three years' time, and, and that would make them more reluctant to make the investment because there's not a high enough return to justify the risk and the effort involved over the three-year period. And I think it's a similar case for other industries and other businesses. That is concerning to me that there's now an ingrained sense of uncertainty since the recession. People have this stuck in the back of their minds, afraid that who knows what could happen in the future. So I'm going to hold back on my investments. And then in terms of geopolitical uncertainty, if there's going to be war, I don't want to have too many loose investments out there that could fall apart. The more uncertainty there is, the more it discourages investment, I think. Yeah, the uncertainty that has roiled business in recent times, certainly post-crisis, has been less on the geopolitical front and more on the domestic legislative front. It's natural following such a big financial crisis that you'd expect more regulation, to be put in place. And with more regulation comes more business uncertainty. And throw on top of that big 
chunk of legislation regarding healthcare that impacts every business owner with more than 50 employees or whatever it is, that magnifies the business uncertainty even more. And it, to an extent, lessens the company's willingness to take on more workers who have all of a sudden become more expensive and may have more rights that they have to look after and be cognizant of. So, you know, there's more business risk for them. But I think the crisis has changed risk takers and entrepreneurs' psyches in certain ways that are more deeply ingrained than in, let's say, previous recessions. I think one reason for that is because the magnitude of this most recent crisis was so much greater than anything else that most people have ever experienced. And by many accounts, it was the biggest financial crisis and recession since the Great Depression. Both of which, which you know, after I, the I, Fed I, was created. <laughs> right, but take a look at crises and crashes that occurred before then. One would presume that there were even greater ones further back in time. My understanding is they were more frequent and you would have more bank collapses and stuff, but that they weren't as extreme. All right, well, uh, maybe you're right. Then. Maybe the, the Fed's the cause of <laughs> all these. <laughs> but back to my serious point, which was that the severity of this most recent crisis has affected businesses' investment habits and also retail investors' investment habits. A lot of retirees that may have seen their savings, or let's say people who are coming up on retirement, may have seen their savings shrink by almost 50%. And that would make anyone be a lot more risk-averse in the future and be less willing to allocate a significant portion of their portfolio to stocks. Which would also, since the natural alternative to stocks is bonds, that would cause rates to decline. But I think they're actually much more related than people think, because people think of bonds as having a transparent rate, but people don't think of stocks as having a rate, but they really do. The price you pay is implying an expected return on the stocks, too. And I would assume that the expected return on stocks is equally low like bonds right now. Well, people wouldn't buy them if their expected return was low, especially in comparison with other asset classes. One reason why people would be slightly more inclined to buy stocks is because the return on bonds is so low. So it requires a lesser hurdle to invest in stocks, all else equal. And you know, furthermore, because equity volatility has been so low for so long. The VIX is at um, a record low, actually, now. Yeah, and continues to drop. And certainly the same is the case for realized volatility and the amount of time since we've seen a, a 10% correction or a 20% drop, which used to be fairly frequent, that lower perceived risk, it lowers the bar for people to allocate more money to equities rather than bonds. Careful, it's going to go to the economist's head and their ego. They're going to think they've cured all economic woes. <laughs> Until the next crisis hits. But if you look back to any time that there was a recession, that was actually one of the better times to be investing. Absolutely. But when you see the rest of your portfolio drop in value, it's, it's hard to increase your risk tolerance or increase your position to risky assets. It kind of goes against human nature, which uh, may incline you to pull back a little bit and even sell at a loss to avoid future losses. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were able to stomach previous drops and increase your allocation to risky assets, yeah, you would have done very, very well. 
I actually believe on a theoretical level that the risk-adjusted returns between all assets is, over the long run, going to be very closely related because investors are always trying to find the best returns, so they're always going to be pouring money into that, which is then going to be pushing prices up, which is going to be pushing returns down. And on a theoretical level, I'm saying on a risk-adjusted basis that that would arb all those things out in between different opportunities. I'm pretty sure uh, there's some lofty economic principles based upon such theoretical musings. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, I mean, when it comes to practical investment considerations, I don't know how, re <laughs> how relevant these uh, observations or musings are. I'm not wanting to deflate your ego. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's wrap things up in terms of talking about the forecasting. Back in 2007, the Fed cut rates from over 5%. The Fed funds rate was at over 5%. And they cut it all the way down to 0% in 2009 to stimulate the economy. And they've kept rates down close to 0% until 2016. And now they've been moving it up, and it's about 1% now. The thing is, one of their big bullets in the chamber, the lever that they can pull, is to lower interest rates in a bad time to stimulate the economy. So if we're at 1% now... I'm not saying I think there's going to be a recession tomorrow, but how much room do you have to go to then say, okay, what if there's another downturn? The Fed, what flexibility do they have? Right. And then this is one of the big concerns with the Fed's position and, and the position of central banks across the developed world right now. They're all in the same boat. They have low rates and very large inflated balance sheets, their balance sheet being the other main lever that they can pull with regard to quantitative easing. So in their present situation, if a recession were to hit right now, they wouldn't be able to lower rates significantly, and it would be questionable as to how much more they could increase their capacity to purchase assets, because cause that tends to be a, a rather politically sensitive topic. And I think one of the main reasons why it was so easy in the past was because, well, first of all, we were in a, a deep crisis, and politicians were very willing to let that happen if it were to stabilize the economy, and also because they had a lot of capacity, their balance sheets were orders of magnitude smaller than they are today. Well, to give a devil's advocate argument here, is, is there really any problem with a central bank balance sheet being big? Well, there's no hard and fast limit as to how big Fed's balance sheet can grow, except there comes a point where there are fewer and fewer assets to actually buy. Um, own everything and take it, over it, the world. <laughs> well, in, in Europe, the ECB, because you don't just have one country issuing European, quote-unquote, sovereign debt, you have sovereign debt of many different nations within the EU and, and within the, the currency bloc. The, the ECB has, in their asset purchasing program, they've tried to buy government bonds in proportion to the size of each country's market. But what they found is that they're running out of bonds to buy in certain countries, and they're largely dominating the markets in various European countries' bonds. So I think there are certainly practical limits as to how Check much they can buy. So it's funny you say that because Zero Hedge wrote an article about that last year that Bridgewater had actually done an analysis on central banks purchasing rates of assets. So the rate at which ECB was running their current program, buying bonds, they were saying that they were going to run out of eligible bonds to buy in the market by 2021, that they would own all the bonds available. You know, honestly, that doesn't surprise me. And yeah, the BOJ is in a similar position. 
as well as stimulating the economy, the central banks want a healthy marketplace for their government's bonds. And I don't think it's a healthy marketplace when one player owns a quarter or more or half of the, the oh, market. And I think at the end of the day, the, the, the Fed and other central banks want a, a stable economy, a stable, healthy, growing economy. So they'll more or less do what they have to do within their limits in order to achieve that outcome. And more cynical people might disagree with me, but I think by and large, that's the case. So final thought, five years from now, the 10-year yield, higher or lower? I think there are as many reasons right now as to why it could be lower than it is today in five years' time as there are economic rationales as to why it should be higher. I wouldn't bet against, let's put it this way, I wouldn't put a short position on treasury bonds and hold it for five years. But would you put a long on? I mean, whether you like it or not, if you're invested in stocks, you have a certain degree of long exposure to uh, rates, like certainly with, let's say, dividend paying stocks. And I think that the case is definitely more compelling to be long bonds right now than to be short bonds. All right. I'll take that as your final verdict. <laughs> and then I'm going to have you listen to this in five years and see what you think about what you said. <laughs> Hopefully in five years' time, hats will be more palatable. Well, yeah, I hope my uh, ambiguous statement was helpful to some. <laughs> my sort of point of view might be bridging the gap between what you might read in the papers and what the kind of consensus on Wall Street is and what people see in reality and in real life. Because like you say, people don't experience inflation rate of whatever CPI is. They experience inflation based on what their consumption habits are and things like that, you know? Uh, yeah, definitely. Related to what you were just saying about the Wall Street thing, I remember seeing on CNBC, David Tepper was talking about his disposition on some specific asset or investment at a particular point in time. And what he was saying on CNBC, he took one very strong position. And then I think a 13F came out later. And what what he was actually doing was the exact opposite. <laughs> so, oh, investment? Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Yeah. So I wonder how much of that playing the poker game and faking what they're doing stuff is going on who knows i think when it comes to hedge fund investing it's, it's a lot more of a game than let's say like a, a, a triple mutual fund might uh, operate in that case you know you're very concerned about who knows what positions you have and the counterparties you trade with you you don't want anyone to have any one party to have too much information about your trading habits because they could infer stuff potentially about your book and and mess you up. Yeah, that's one of those societal structure things. It's funny because on the one hand, you want to have transparency so that your investors can trust you and feel confident in what you're doing. But then at the same time, if you have a proprietary method to what you do, you want to safeguard that. And you also don't want your competitors to know what's going on so that they're arbing you out or those kind of things. <laughs> I think we can cut things off there. All right. Well, well, thank you so much for having yeah, me. It was yeah, a pleasure. Yeah. I, to I definitely appreciate you uh, sharing. It's always interesting to discuss such things with you. I really appreciate this, man. No, not at all. This is this is fun. This is enjoyable. Yeah, we'll I have hope, to do uh, another one on bond funds. All right, that'll wrap things up for this episode. Thanks again for joining us. 
Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or in Google Play by searching The Post Money Plan. Catch us next time on another episode of The Post Money Plan Podcast.